Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is sponsored by Growing Farmers and Small Farm University. Discover Small Farm University, the ultimate resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers worldwide. SFU offers online, on-demand courses that teach crop growth and profitable farm business management using the unique Ripen method. Learn from experienced farmers and avoid costly mistakes. Highlights of SFU's library include finding the perfect farm property, starting your farm with a one-page business plan, mastering farmer's market success, production techniques like growing greens and tunnel building, and specialized classes such as Elderberry Masterclass. SFU members enjoy access to Growing Farmers Summits, a private Facebook group, and monthly live Q&A sessions for support. Over 100,000 people have attended these annual online events. Join SFU and transform your farming future. Visit growingfarmers.com today. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. Today, my guest is Jake Puckett of Crow Fly Farms in Marion, North Carolina. As an accredited professional with the Savory Institute, Jake has been able to apply the complexities of holistic management to all aspects of his farm. His cattle and sheep are 100% grass-fed and finished, and his hogs are raised entirely in the forest, living out of his farm's motto of happy animals, healthy ecosystem, and clean meat. Jake, welcome to the podcast for having me and i appreciate uh you doing what you do and giving farmers a voice what they're doing and share all they have to have to say absolutely um so give us a little bit of a background about how you got started in farming yeah so i'm a first generation farmer so this is not something that uh my family has done or that i ever honestly expected myself to be doing so I get the livestock side of things is my dad's actually a large animal veterinarian. And so a lot of my youth was uh, spent riding around with him, going to different farms. And I initially, uh, animals and just the whole sort of farming lifestyle at an early age. And that was where the majority of my youth was spent. And so that was kind of my initial foot in the door, which I didn't realize how much of an impression that made until uh, much later in life. And so <clears throat> it honestly wasn't until many sort of career changes and various things that I'd done over the years that I kind of returned to farming and thought that that was something that I could actually pursue as a living and would be interested in doing. So I actually, coming out of college, was an art major, which is about as far from farming as one can get. But while um, doing architectural ironwork after I'd gotten out of college, um, I then went on and worked at a sculpture studio doing large-scale sculpture out of stone. Um, and while I really enjoyed that work, I just, for some reason, was never really feeling fulfilled in that line of work. And... I was at the time living with my wife out in Colorado and we started playing around actually with uh, baking sourdough bread of all things. And we started selling that at farmer's markets. And I really um, didn't know how appealing the response was to providing people with like really good quality food and just how appreciative people were. Mm. And so kind of simultaneous to all of that happening um 
I was sort of becoming more aware of how important it was for sourcing food and how big of an impact the management of those food systems can be on getting. And so oddly enough, my wife and I have both been vegetarians at, at parts of our lives. And for her, it was sort of an animal welfare um, sort of thing. And for me, it was largely environmental reasons. And as I started to kind of dig in and realize that it wasn't really the ant problem, it was the management of the animals that was causing a lot of the issues. That's where a big shift happened on my end and um, kind of started going down the rabbit hole and became aware of regenerative farming practices. And as I started to educate myself more and more, I was at a sort of a point in my life where I was looking for a change. And yeah, we started having some long, hard conversations. We were really looking at where our food was coming from. We happened to have access to a really amazing whole animal butcher that was not far from where we lived. And kind of all of these things came to a head and we sort of just said, well, why don't we just start our own farm? And then we know the animals are gonna be treated well. We know that through our management, we can actually be improving the environment. And we can also provide this really amazing product to other people out there that may or may not be aware of these practices. And so kind of along that winding road, um, we landed on starting a farm. And uh, yeah, bit by bit, here we are today. So, so you just kind of dove in. You're a first generation farmer who kind of like got bit by the, we need to start doing something different with our food, start doing sourdough. Actually, it's funny that um, you started with sourdough. We are now doing sourdough with the aspect that we're not actually making it for customers, but we're teaching classes on it. And um, that works out really well for us. But um, yeah, exciting to hear that journey and just what that made you um, kind of start. Now, obviously, land is always one of the biggest challenges of first generation farmers. Did you have access to land? And if you didn't, how did you um, get access? Yeah, so um, I would totally agree with that that statement. Um, and we know a lot of folks out here who are leasing land, and we're actually leasing some land in addition to the property that we um, now own. But that land acquisition component is always a really tricky one. And to be completely honest, um, I don't know that we would have been able to make this whole thing happen had we not sort of been in the right place at the right time. So as I said earlier, we were living in Denver, Colorado at the time, and the housing market out there was just crazy. And we happened mm -hmm. to be able to get our foot in the door and found what was seemingly the last affordable house in some proximity to Denver. And in the couple of years that we owned that home, it went up in value quite a bit. And um, yeah, when we decided to do this whole thing, we were looking at what homes were going for around us. And we said, well, if we if we sell this house and we really commit to this thing, then we're going to have enough money to put a down payment on a piece of land. And that's that's what we did. And, um, you know, we we looked at a lot of different places when we were trying to find land. But when we so I grew up originally um, just outside of Charlotte in North Carolina. And my wife is uh, currently getting a doctorate in physical therapy. And so 
we started looking for places that uh, basically checked as many boxes as possible. We were hoping to sort of be in the mountains still. We wanted to be closer to family, which her family is all up in Wisconsin right now. And um, obviously needed to find a school that offered um, the program that she was looking for. And so fortunately, Western North Carolina um, kind of checked all those boxes for us. And we were fortunate enough for her to be able to get accepted into Western Carolina's uh, School of Physical Therapy. And another reason we kind of chose this area as well was just that there's a, a really amazing food scene in Asheville. And mm -hmm. we knew that that was going to be our primary market for selling because um, obviously you don't have a business if you can't sell your product. And so it's just been um, really amazing, amazing place to be starting a farm, especially using regenerative practices and the types of management styles that, that we implement because there's sort of already a base knowledge here um, about that. And while we always try to educate our consumers as much as we can, it's nice having people come up that are already aware of, of what we're doing and these types of practices and why they're important. So um, yeah, the land acquisition component though was very, very tricky. And we looked for land for nearly a year and we have a lot of friends in the farming community around us that have had leases fall through. And uh, yeah, I mean, just getting your foot in the door is definitely one of the, the biggest challenges in my opinion. Yeah. So then with your property, was it something that you purchased or you're leasing or what's the combination now working on? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we purchased this property in uh, the very beginning of 2020 and we actually weren't particularly looking in this area. So a, another sort of backside of this, one of the things that kind of helped our business is we were, um, my dad down in Charlotte, we were staying with them when we were looking for land and uh, he has about 10 acres. And so we were very committed to doing this whole thing. And so we actually went ahead and purchased some pigs just so we could get the ball rolling with our uh -huh. operations. And so that once we actually did have land, we would already have animals that were sort of in the pipeline. It wouldn't be just starting from zero the moment we got on here. Um, so crazy enough, we actually, um, we were going to pick up a pig and it was in Marion, never even had heard of Marion, but wasn't terribly far from Asheville. And uh, the lady we were getting the pig from, we called her when we, were, we got to her place and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm running a little bit late right now. And uh, we said, okay, no big deal. We're actually looking for, for properties right now. And so we'll just go drive around she said, well, how much, how much land are you looking for? And we kind of told her what the sort of range mm. was. And she said, oh, well, there's a property for sale over off Goose Creek. You should go check it out. And so we went and took a look and uh, we called our realtor. And two days later, we were walking around the property. And then about a week later, we put in an offer. Um, and so anyhow, that pig Walter earned a permanent spot on the farm and will never <laughs> be going to slaughter because we we owe uh we owe getting this property to him so um sort of happen chance that we were able to to find this place 
Mm, very, very cool. So then, so you started with pigs. What was the next step on the farm? Yeah, so um, I guess I've always been attracted, especially from the regenerative side of things. Ruminants are really they're they're built for this you know it's there's very little inputs that are required for those and i always knew that i wanted to move into uh cattle and sheep production and so for us when we were trying to figure out from a business standpoint we knew that the pigs were going to be a much quicker turnaround for us um and so we started with the pigs um we got a handful of pigs that we began with and what we tried to do is sort of figure out a way that we could um, we could sort of stack enterprises so that as as we were growing the cattle and sheep side of things, the pigs would be a consistent form of income for us. And so early on, we uh, we started with the pigs. Um, we eventually ended up getting a breeding group of pigs, and were able to then start farrowing on farm, which allowed us to scale very quickly with the pigs. So we went from like, mm -hmm. basically in the first year, I think we did like 12 pigs. And then the following year, we were at any point on the farm had, or any point during the year had anywhere from probably 50 to 70 hogs on the farm. Um, so sort of simultaneous to all of that happening, um, we purchased some cattle, we got a breeding group, and yeah, we just started um, We started growing that side of things, knowing that it was gonna be probably a few years before we actually started selling, really selling uh, beef and lamb, and uh, the pigs provided a means for us to, to get the ball rolling. It also was, um, you know, that was the first product that we were able to put out, and uh, we got a really great response from it, and we were sort of able to build our our name that way. And from that standpoint, I think, you know, as far as starting a farm goes, things like pigs and chickens that you have a quicker turnaround on do provide a good opportunity, even if it's just sort of a transitionary species um, and may not necessarily be the long-term vision of the farm. Gotcha. All right. Um, so then with all of this, there's an education gap because you started as a non-farmer. How did you bridge that? Kind of was it just learn, um, you know, on the fly or did you invest to kind of make sure you got a leg up or? Yeah, yeah. So um, I kind of simultaneously did a, a number of things. A lot of it was just sort of reading and research. Um, but when I was living out in Colorado, one of the things that sort of helped us to make this transition with some confidence is um, I became aware of the, the Savory Institute. Mm -hmm. And so the Savory Institute, um, holistic management is their sort of primary teaching philosophy that they use. But a lot of it is centered around um, what would be considered, I guess, regenerative practices and they were headquarters, their US headquarters was actually in Boulder, Colorado. And so I reached out to them and I knew that we were gonna be, um, we were gonna be moving likely back to North Carolina. And at that time, the nearest savory hub was in Virginia and that's um, up in central Virginia, it's uh, Temptual Wildland, they're like consulting side of things is the Rabinia Institute. But I reached out to them and I started 
you know, just with some very basic questions, I feel like things that um, a lot of people ask, especially like how many animals can I have per acre and how long should they be there and what, how big should my paddock size? And the answer honestly was a lot of, um, well, it depends, which was at the time could be a bit frustrating, but um, I sort of learned the why and how behind that as I went further along. But what I ended up doing was I took a, uh, it was over the course of about a year, um, sort of broken up into different multi-day sessions, but I took a holistic management course that was offered through the Rabinia Institute. And that was a really a deep dive. And like when folks ask me sort of what the, the holistic management side of things is, I mean, I think the best way that I can describe it is it's not necessarily like a how-to guide, but really what it is, is a, uh, it's more of a philosophy and a, a framework for decision-making, whether it be uh, financial, um, land planning, uh, when to move animals. It sort of was a, a larger philosophical approach to management and that was really what gave me the the confidence to go ahead and proceed with this. And I felt like um, we at least had enough of a base to, to get the ball rolling. And so that was sort of my educational um, beginnings into this style of agriculture. And, you know, a lot of research and reading, like I said, on the side, but that was, that was what gave me the the motivation and the confidence to to go ahead and proceed with this. So that was all sort of happening in the background while we were discussing whether or not this was feasible and sort of at the end of uh, completing those courses, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to go on this thing. I feel like we can really do it. We can make this happen and it can be a legitimate business for us. Mm -hmm. So they gave you the confidence and the framework to move to the next step. You got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your current market. Um, so where are you selling and like what's the what's the uh the system and the process? Yeah, so um we sort of have three ways that we sell our product right now. Um so we do sell to a few restaurants in Asheville, um, and that's been sort of our wholesale side of things. And Interestingly enough, we did things a, a bit backwards here, but we actually had wholesale clients at restaurants before we ever sold a single item to an individual. Um, so we early on, I got on the phone and this was before we'd ever tried any of our product or tasted anything. Um, we believed it was going to be good, but we weren't mm. really sure. But um, again, Asheville being such a good food scene, I was able to get in contact with a couple of really great restaurants in the area that had placed a big emphasis on farm to table. They listened to me talk. They could tell how passionate we were about what we were doing and they just really wanted to support us. So we were able to get some, uh, a couple of wholesale clients where we were selling whole animal to restaurants. And that really got the ball rolling for us from there. And the other two ways that we're, we're still selling currently is we do a farmer's market in Asheville every weekend, and we also do um, some animal shares just direct to consumer. And the farmer's market is something that we just got into 
this year and it was largely because we just felt like we didn't really have enough product to be consistently showing up at markets and mm -hmm. we knew that if we were going to be doing a market we didn't want to be sold out half the time we were there or have like a very limited supply so we've actually been able we're now selling um beef lamb and pork at the market that we're at and that's been a really amazing opportunity um, as far as growing the business because it's just we're able to be in front of people tell them about our mission um, explain why our practices are important and also just how it's different than what most conventional farming systems look like so mm -hmm. that's that for us has been um a really great uh, marketing tool because it's just it's a great way to just meet a lot of people and literally put your product in uh, the mouths of many many different folks so that's been a really great way um, of getting out there and earlier this year I also um, I spoke at a the farm where you live is like a homesteading conference that was mm -hmm. uh, in Asheville area it was at the Ag Center and I spoke on Silvo pasture while we were there and a lot of the um, sort of homesteading market that's been a really amazing source for us um, because a lot of those folks are very interested in in whole animal shares so um, we've kind of been able to tap into that market as well and that has proved to be um, a, a really great thing for us so I think one of the things that we've found that's really has worked for us is just sort of having multiple streams of income um, mm -hmm. from different sources. Like the the restaurant side of things is great, but you're obviously not making quite as much money because it's wholesale, but it's also been very dependable. We know we're getting X amount of money every single month from this restaurant because we're providing that product. and the farmer's market can be a little bit more variable, um, but it's also just been, a, like I said, it's been a means for us to just really just meet a, a huge market of people and a lot of people that are excited about food and then they tell their friends once they've had our stuff. And so in my opinion, um, that's been just a, a wonderful addition to sort of the, the other forms of selling our product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I, I know you're too, um, you got the restaurants. Now you're also shifting, I think, a little bit more to trying to get those, the full animal, because I think that's something that needs more discussion is people only know about a certain number of cuts of any animal and trying to get them to buy these other cuts is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So for sure. I'm actually um, really glad you brought that up because the way that we're, um, we're selling at markets is a little bit of a different system. So we're selling in bundles. Um, and basically what we do is we really don't sell any individual cuts. Now, um, there are a few exceptions to that. For instance, on a hog, something like the Boston butt, because you're only getting a handful of those per animal, we can't really neatly fit those into one of our bundles. So we'll sell a few things like that by the pound. But what we try to do is, um, we sell in these bundles that offer a sampling of various cuts from the animal. Um, one thing that's been really great about it is that we've had a lot of folks who are like, oh, well, like I've never, I've never had this cut before. Or I've never tried this.
but they're very open to trying it, um, especially if you can provide some recipes or give a little bit of guidance on how to cook those things. But we we place a huge emphasis on whole animal use, and um, we sell the bones, we sell the organs, and we've actually had a remarkable response to both bones and organs in particular at the uh, Asheville City Market where we sell. But yeah, people sort of, when they come up and they say, oh, I want a pork chop, and we say, okay, well, that's fine. Um, you can get pork chops, but if you buy this, you're also gonna get this, this, and this with it. And when we explain that uh, our, we have such a large sort of emphasis and a part of our ethos is using every single bit of the animal, people can very quickly get on board with that system. And do we lose some customers? Probably here and there, we, we don't always get them. But the other thing that's nice is when we're selling in that way, one, you don't just run through all of your steaks in the first two weeks of getting a, a cow back from the processor. But um, it also just uh, it just provides a lot of variety for the customers. And those cells, when you make them, like instead of needing to make, you know, 50 or 60 cells at a market, we can then sort of get to where like, okay, well, if we can just sell 10 to 15 bundles, we're hitting the numbers that we want. So it's kind of, we're probably having less transactions, but we're making potentially more money, I guess, going through the um, bundle route. But it's been a system that we found works for us and our customers now that they've gotten accustomed to it, um, really like it. And they just sort of, they can buy a couple of our bundles and they're set for the next month, depending on how big their family is. So. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's less customers, but a higher value per customer. And um that's so important. It's so important. So when one of the things with our store is we're always trying to figure out how we can increase the value of per sale. And, you know, the thing, this last month when we hit strawberries, strawberries is our biggest season of the year. We were at $45 a person. Now that might not seem good, but before that we were averaging 30. Right. And so be able to right. go 50% more average sale per customer is fabulous. So yeah, I see exactly what you're doing there. And if they have it, they're going to probably try to eat it. So, um, or they're going to ask about it, but they wouldn't necessarily want to try it. But the fact that they got a bundle from you, it almost feels like it's more like, so let's put this scenario out there. I walk up to a farmer's market. I look in your case and I see oxtail and I'm like, Ooh, that looks weird. And I'm not going to necessarily ask, but if I get a bundle that has oxtail in it, because I now want to use it up, I'm going to ask you and say, what do you do with oxtail? And you're like, Oh my gosh, well, that's delicious. Exactly. Exactly. You've got it. And I mean, um, the other thing is it just, because people are trying cuts that they may have never had before, they're going to be much more willing to come back in and try it again. Cause they're going to, we've had so many people say, Oh, I didn't know what to do with that, but my gosh, that was like the best thing I've ever had. And it's, it's really been um, a rewarding. And I feel like for the customers, it's just nice to sort of expand the palates of what they're used to, to trying because there's so many good cuts on an animal that you know traditionally aren't going to either be sold in grocery stores or people just are unfamiliar with and like i said one of the things we're sort of playing with too is uh starting to create just some recipes for folks that we may have on our website or have little rack cards that we can give out because um yeah a lot of people are intimidated and uh you would think with the world of google you could just get some oxtail and type it in and that would be that but um 
some people are still a bit intimidated. So it's uh, always yeah, something some... we're sort of trying to work on and modify, but we've been very happy with it overall. Yeah, for some reason, people don't know how to Google. Yeah, yeah, I don't know quite. <laughs> uh, Everything in the world gets Googled, but somehow yeah. when it comes to cooking uh, meat, yeah, missing the train there. This podcast is sponsored by Small Farm University, the go-to resource for gardeners, homesteaders, and farmers around the world. Small Farm University delivers classes online and on demand with training on how to grow crops and how to grow a profitable farm business that serves you, your family, and your community well. Applying what you learn in SFU could save you thousands of hours and thousands of dollars. And it can save you the agony of costly mistakes some make just because they don't know what they don't know. Delivered by real farmers with hands-on experience and expertise, it is unique in its approach, using the ripened method for growing and building a farm or farm business. Here are a few highlights of what SFU has to offer in its growing library of resources. Find your perfect farm property. Whether you're renting or purchasing, this course guides you through vetting the farm property and determining how or if it suits your business needs. We give you the secret sauce for what makes a profitable farm property and help save you thousands of dollars. Start your farm intensive. Fleshing out your farm idea, craft your one-page business plan, and discover the right funding options for your business. Use our business templates, worksheets, and calculators to figure out the numbers as you go. Farmer's Market Success System. Learn how to attract and convert customers by building an unstoppable marketing and business system for your farmer's markets. Production Mastery Series. Learn all about growing, harvesting, and drying greens. Learn about tunnel building and take special classes such as brand new and very popular Elderberry Masterclass. We include real-life examples and calculators for figuring out fertility rates, how much money you are actually making, and where your profit is coming from. Business Systems and Marketing Courses. Learn about the SFU Ripen Formula for Success, develop your marketing plan, and join in for behind-the-scenes tours of real farm businesses. Learn the systems you need to run your business well and how to hire a team to help you. And learn how you can add value to what you produce to generate even more income with minimal additional time and expense. In addition, members of SFU get access to the Growing Farmer Summits on demand with over 100 sessions of targeted areas of interest to farmers. These annual online events have attracted over 100,000 people from around the world, and they are included in your SFU membership as a bonus. SFU membership includes access to a private member group, monthly group Q&A sessions, and even one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions where you can get your questions answered and find the support you need. To learn more, visit growingfarmers.com today. So a couple things. Talk to us about how you're converting the property to silvopasture. So yeah, so, you know, silvopasture is one of the things that I'm like probably the most excited about on our farm. And we are, um, we're approaching that from a number of different directions right now. And I guess the, the sort of the two approaches that we're, we're taking is one sort of, is sort of an additive approach and one is a reductive approach. And so when we bought our property, one of the reasons it was somewhat affordable is because there was only a limited amount of pasture on our farm. And a lot of that was forested. And so um, just to list a few ways, and I can go into more detail on like what we're specifically doing with that. But like we've used prescribed burns on our property. 
Um, we're currently working with a logger to do a very selective harvest where we're trying to sort of achieve a certain percentage of canopy cover that remains in place. So that would be the thinning. Um, in areas of open pasture, we're doing a lot of plantings um, that we're actively working on. And yeah, we, we're kind of approaching it from a lot of different directions, but I guess ultimately have the same goal, which is to have basically a farm-wide silvopasture system that we're able to supplement food for our animals with, we're able to provide shelter, um, give some diversity of nutrition that we're, we're providing to them. Uh, yeah, lots of, lots of different reasons for that, but approaching it from many different angles. Mm -hmm. So with that, you're, you know, planting different trees and shrubs, the, the trees and shrubs, are you doing anything specific or is it trying to be as, as basically as native as possible? Well, let me, let me go back just a bit and I'll touch and we'll get into the, um, like sort of what we're planting and why. So one of the things that we really like to do here on our farm is if we can use animal impact over diesel fuel, we always are gonna choose that option here. And so we typically try to really place an emphasis on putting animals in a place where they're gonna thrive, which is why we, um, we shifted to raising our hogs entirely in the forest. And so mm. part of our silvopasture development plan hogs as a tool and like man those guys are unbelievable at what they do and so what we've done is we've sort of systematically rotated them through our forested areas and done probably a slightly higher um, amount of impact rotating them and planning on to return so we essentially have put them in in a paddock and we are usually in that area for roughly three weeks but what they they've been able to do for us is a lot of the brambles and sort of understory stuff they just go through throughout that understory and so while they're also clearing the understory what they're doing all of that we have years and years of leaf litter that was just built up and because they want to root and all of the nuts and grubs and roots and all of that food that that pigs would be accessing in a natural system is underneath them, they are just churning, they're urinating on it, they're defecating on it. And so what they end up doing is they open up that understory, but they're simultaneously compost that stuff that's on top. And what we found is that when we get done with that sort of period of time where we have them in one of these paddocks, we have basically a perfect seedbed. And so we, we basically have run our pigs through in the areas that we're focusing on opening up uh, the canopy and sort of the, the last part of that, so the sequence would look like we run the pigs through, we come through, we do the selective harvest. Um, once we get that appropriate canopy opened onto the forest floor, then we're going to come in and the we're actually hoping to have this done by this spring but the um the clearing has taken a little bit longer than anticipated but basically what we're going to do is we're going to come in and we're going to seed with native warm season grasses and what we're trying to establish is a dedicated summertime grazing area for our cattle and sheep so when we're in the middle of that sort of summer slump what we'll have is 
we're going to, once the fescues and orchards and timothies and all of your cool season grasses start to fade off, we're planting um, big blue stem, little blue stem, Indian grass, all native warm season grasses that would have been here a long time. And they're going to be thriving. And we're also, because we're going to be running them through these sort of shaded silvo pasture areas, it's going to be a reprieve for our animals. So in the middle of the summer, when we've got the summer slump happening, the cool seasons are going down, the warm seasons will really be going off. And then we're also going to be able to move all of our ruminants, the cattle and sheep, out of our um, more open areas and get them into this silvo system where they're going to be on forage that is really peaking at the time that we're, we're grazing it. So um, that was a long-winded answer, but that's sort of our approach for the, the thinning side of things, where we're starting with forest and then moving towards. The long-term goal is to, to be able to run our ruminants primarily through there. And what we're doing is we're using the pigs as a tool to get us to that place. Gotcha. Now, if I remember correctly, you... Uh, run your cattle and sheep together in a flurd. I do, yeah. So we we run our cattle and sheep together, and we've been incredibly happy with that and that from day one. And you know, some of it is um, just from an ease of management standpoint. So instead of setting up fencing for multiple um, for our sheep and cattle, and then trying to deal with the intricacies of making sure that we're not overgrazing by returning to areas too soon, we run everybody together, and we've been able to train the whole crew to two wires. So we're just using mobile poly wire on reels, and we set up our paddocks. But one of the things that I get the most excited about is just watching the diversity of grazing that happens when you put both of those different species in an area together, because the sheep are going for things that the cattle like. I know on our property, we've got a lot of multi-flora rows, which um, it seems like a lot of farmers will curse this stuff, and I'd be lying if I didn't say that I didn't curse it on occasion when I'm getting torn up trying to set up paddocks, but we can have three feet of grass when we move to a new paddock, and our sheep go straight for the multiflora. I mean, it's mm. their favorite thing to eat in the entire paddock. Our cattle actually enjoy it quite a bit. Um, you know, it's been really interesting just observing over the years with that, we've tried to leave it in place where we can because it's been, it's been an amazing food source for them. And there's some sort of nutritional wisdom in there that the, the cattle and sheep have because they're choosing that oftentimes over what would be seemingly much better forage. And additionally to that, you know, I've seen fawns bedded down underneath the multiflora, birds are making nests in it. And also in a silvo pasture system, one thing I can a big patch of multiflora in an open field, give it a few years and there's going to be a tree that emerges out of that. Because mm. every single one of our patches of multiflora that's bigger than what like the sheep or cattle can penetrate into, we've got, um, it seems like tulip poplars in particular really like to come out of that. But, you know, we've we've got the wild and seeds and we've got persimmons and poplars and things like that that are emerging. And the other thing that's cool about that is 
you have a built-in um, tree cage that's impenetrable mm, yes. by animals. And it's just like, it, it's funny because the guy doing the logging out here, he said to a, one of our helpers the other day, he said, oh, I've been trying to tell Jake, he's got to get that multi-flora under control. It's like, I love this stuff. I, I truly, it's, it's one of my favorite uh, species of plants that we've got growing here on the farm because the wildlife love it, the cattle and sheep love it. And um, it's also just making my life easier because it's planting trees for me without me doing anything. So that I kind of went off on a tangent on multi-flora there and I don't even know where we started out on that question, but um, but yeah, that's sort of, I guess it was the flirt. Yeah, yeah, no, that's super cool. Um, so let's, we're getting to the end of this, but let's talk a little bit about like, you know, going back and starting all over again, if you were, what kind of systems or what things would you change? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that has been a little bit of a learning curve is trying to plan for like where you're going to pull production, not where you're at currently and trying to implement systems that are either easily modifiable so that they can grow as your operation grows, as your business grows, because there's just been a lot of things that we've had to sort of repeat with um, something that was appropriate for the scale we were at. And then we got more animals and it didn't really work anymore. So we had to change it. And I think really trying to keep in mind where you're headed is a good approach when making decisions, especially anything that's gonna be long-term. And I think one of the other things that is fairly important to especially, so for instance, on our property, we were able to afford this property because there was basically zero infrastructure, like nothing. Like there was um, really no infrastructure to speak of. But I think that, something that's really beneficial as you're starting a new business is to use your land. What's your day-to-day? -day? What are the tools that you're using the most? What would be really helpful? Would it make sense to have uh, you know, a water connection over here? Where are the weak points in your systems? And I feel like a lot of people, when they get on a property, they just want to start. And I understand that there's a, a certain amount of that that's just required to operate. But I think that like getting to know and understanding the forage, how wildlife moves through it, where your weak points are, I think all of that could be super beneficial when starting out. And I guess just not rushing into any major, major decisions, especially ones that are going to be costly on the on the front end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's really good. Um, so talk a little bit about the team, like how many people do you have on the farm and uh, what does that look like? Yeah, so it's it's honestly it's shifted quite a bit this year. Um, so from the beginning, as I mentioned earlier, my wife's getting a doctorate in physical therapy, been my primary farmhand throughout this, and um, I do this full time. And so she's kind of only been able to help me sort of outside of school hours as she's going through this. And so up until this year, I've really been nearly a one-man show, which has been a, a lot to take on um, as an interviewer at with things. Now, this year, we had, uh, we had an intern earlier this year, and we just 
acquired another on-farm intern, um, which has been massively, massively helpful because we're just sort of getting to a scale where it's beyond what a single person can take on. I guess the third part of that that's new for this year, which has been um, a really great experience, is we're, we are doing essentially a, a co-farming operation this year where we have some friends that moved onto our property. They actually, going back to your question earlier about owning or leasing, they have had some leases fall through. They've been at a fairly small scale and have pulled the trigger and just go for it, but they just haven't had dependable land um, to do so. And so we've actually included this year, we're doing an organic fed pastured poultry operation. And we have our friends that it's basically an independent business running from ours, but we all help each other with everything. And uh, it's been a, a really great thing for the farm because we're getting some extra help. They're able to grow their business. And uh, it seems like everybody's honestly benefiting from it. Mm, absolutely. Um, so then um, with your farm, talk to a little bit about where do you see the future going? Yeah, yeah. So we started out primarily with pigs, but we... Um, We've definitely grown our cattle and sheep operations and sort of as we continue this like massive land development project where we're trying to convert roughly 60 acres into more of a silvo pasture system, we're hoping to continue to grow our cattle and sheep enterprises and sort of on farm like animal enterprises. We're offering a lot more consulting that we're starting to do and uh, teaching for, for folks. We're also starting to, we're gonna be rolling out this year some like on-farm butchery and just a lot more educational side of things because we just constantly are running into folks who are very interested about like learning or they're starting their own farm and don't really know where to begin. And so I would say just growing the current enterprises that we have while also providing uh, a larger educational platform for folks to, to learn from us and hear what our mistakes were and try to help them on their own farming journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What kind of advice would you give to someone who's just starting out? Um, I think that, you know, as you're getting into this, one of the things that I've learned is I think it's very easy to try and take on too many enterprises when you're starting a farm because I think in some ways it's better to commit to like one or two particularly like species and do those really well and do it at a scale that you can actually sell that consistently. Mm. A little bit of one thing because the, the thing is when you're – if you're going to feed five pigs at a time or you're going to feed 50 pigs at a time, you're still having to, you know, load up your side by side. You're still having to drive to wherever they are. Um, you're still having to go through all of those motions. And for us, it's as we've grown, the workload has increased somewhat, but it hasn't been a, a monumental change. Like setting up fencing is still setting up fencing for a new paddock. And so I think that trying to not spread yourself too thin and really focus on an enterprise 
And if you want to slowly start growing the others, that's fine. But I think having one thing that's sort of going to be your bread and butter, and that's what's going to get your foot in the door, I think that's a really great approach um, to, to just starting out. Yeah, have something that you can provide to your customers consistently, regularly, um, know your product, and, and that'll be a great way to foot in the door. And then as you add other enterprises down the road, people are already going to be familiar with you because you've been able to show up consistently for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely true on that. And for us, that's our salad mix. So year round, we have, we have salad mix 52 weeks out of the year, and that's consistently our number one seller until strawberry season when that's our biggest seller. But yeah, having that one key thing that people know you for and that right. you can really push. Um, so we're actually getting ready to do some marketing. And one of the first pieces of marketing we're going to do is a video that really pushes like how people love our salad and stuff like that. And um, then that will hopefully uh, be able to run that as a ever going ad to pull people into the store. Yeah, you got it. And it's just, it's that I feel like a lot of it is the, the consistency side of things. And I know um, we often have folks that ask say like, Oh, why don't you sell at more markets? And sort of where we've been at is I would rather sit on some of our product for a bit longer, but be able to show up every single week and consistently provide our customers with product rather than going to two or three different markets, running out of stuff. And like some weeks we have it, some weeks we don't. And so I just think that um, consistency for, for customers is a, is really important when you're trying to grow a business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate you sharing Jake and uh, look forward to a meeting in person someday. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice chatting with you and uh, look forward to hear what all you have to put out in the future. Absolutely. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.